Well, greetings, brethren. It certainly is a wonderful joy to keep God's Feast of Tabernacles. Today I'd like to address a topic that relates to why thousands of people read the Bible, but yet they do not observe God's holy days or His Sabbath. It's also a reality that there were thousands of people who kept God's festivals with us 15, 20 years ago, who today are not with us. They do not keep God's holy days. They do not keep His Sabbath. Why? Well, many of them, and especially in this world, they have been persuaded to a different understanding of the Scripture. That understanding is often described as Pauline theology or a progressive theology. The concept is that the New Testament church split into two groups, the Jewish church and then later through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the Gentile church. And in the Gentile church, they were taught by Paul a different message than Jesus Christ and the apostles taught, that they were taught they did not need to keep God's Sabbath day, that they did not need to keep the holy days or the laws regarding clean and unclean. The claim is that Paul taught grace and not law. The Gentiles do not need to observe the Sabbath. They do not need to be aware of or even observe God's holy days. Now, in our literature over the years and presently, we have well explained those scriptures that have been used and twisted in this type of doctrine. Colossians chapter 2, Romans 14 chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Galatians, they've been very well explained by God's church. And yet, in spite of that, we have thousands who are persuaded to a different understanding. I also personally, as a minister, have had occasion when I've explained those passages to someone and have had the response, oh, well, that's how your church understands these scriptures. Well, yes, that's true. That is how, quote, your church or our church, the living church of God, understands these scriptures. But is that all? I'd like to point out to you that even during the ministry and life of the Apostle Paul, people were already twisting his words. Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 3 and in verse 14. Peter wrote, He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul. And that's interesting. You see the respect and the upholding of Paul's ministry here by Peter. And yet we know in Galatians that Paul did point out to Peter that he was at fault in a situation. So Peter did not have animosity. He put that in perspective. He accepted Paul's instruction, his words, and responded to them. And so he says, also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So as Peter wrote this, Paul's words were being twisted, but also they were also twisting the rest of the Scripture. It's important to recognize that Peter and the church of God at this time already understood that Paul's epistles belonged in and were considered a part of the Word of God. So, brethren, today what I'd like to do is to show you from a different perspective strong evidence 
that Paul would not have taught anyone to break God's Sabbath, that he would not have taught anyone not to keep God's holy days, including those whom he served in the Gentile church. Now you say, well, what, where does such evidence exist? Well, it exists because Paul himself testified of what he taught, what he believed, and what he was convicted of before kings. And I would like to start there first. Let's notice first in the book of Acts the account of when the apostle Paul appeared before three different individuals of great authority of kings during his time. And he did so because of accusations brought against him that were not true. In Acts chapter 21, and in verse 18, I'd like to pick up the account. I would encourage you to read this entire section, starting in Acts chapter 21. And as you do, you'll find that Paul had been warned, if he went up to Jerusalem, that it would be difficult for him, and that he may well lose his life. And he accepted that, and he went up. Now, when he went up, he was not alone. He had others who traveled with him, his companions. But for the purpose of this message, I'd like to start in verse 18 of Acts chapter 21 of this account. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. So he traveled up to Jerusalem, but he went very quickly and was received by the brethren in verse 17, and he went up then to the leadership of the church of God. It says, And all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in great, or excuse me, in detail, those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he gave an account of the work that he had done through the leadership of Jesus Christ, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So the church was very excited about what had been happening within the Gentile area of God's church. They said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And so not only was the God's church growing very rapidly in the Gentile community, it also is growing in Jerusalem. And notice here what was happening in Jerusalem. It says, and they are all zealous for the law. There was a zeal for God's law in God's church that was going through the church. And, of course, I think Paul was very much a part of that as he taught and ministered in the Gentile community. Verse 21 but they have been informed about you. We find there's rumors or twisting, as we'll read, of what Paul was saying and what he was teaching. It says, They have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, that obviously was not true. That was not what Paul was doing. That was not what he was teaching. In fact, he himself personally had come to Jerusalem to pay alms and to worship. So he was advised by the leadership in the church so that this would be made clear that he should be purified with four men who have taken a vow and that he would join them and that publicly it would be seen that he, as we read in the last part of verse 24, that, that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Paul followed this advice, verse 26, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. So he became a part of and followed this advice. He did, in fact, what he had been counseled to do. 
But we find very quickly, if you read the account, that the very presence of the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem, that there were those who very quickly stirred up, that is, the Jews from Asia, verse 27, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this was beginning of events that led Paul to stand before kings. And in Acts chapter 24, I'd like to move quickly ahead in the account. I'd encourage you to read all of it. It's a very interesting account of accusation, of lies against a servant of God, of twisting of what he actually, in fact, did do, and the accusations that were brought against him. But in Acts chapter 24, Paul has the occasion to defend himself before Felix. And Felix was an authority at this time in the Roman Empire. Uh, His reputation was that not of a gentle or mild-mannered person, but actually of a very mean and overbearing uh, ruler. So much so that uh, commentaries say that he was removed from office simply because of the many, many complaints that were brought against him by the Jews. But he's brought before Felix. He is accused, and he answers for himself. And so it's to Paul's words, his testimony, in a formal court situation that I would like to point out what he says. In Acts 24, verse 14, he says to Felix, says, but this I confess to you. And he denied their accusations, and he disputed their charges, showing physically it wasn't even possible for him to do what they said he did because of the length of time in which he was present. But he said, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. So God's church, his way, was known as a sect then and today. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. The Apostle Paul said that he believed everything which was written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. We read then later, because Felix is replaced by Festus, and we read later he's brought again after a period of time before Festus, and he speaks for himself again. In Acts chapter 25, verse 6, it says, When he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. That is, Festus commanded that Paul be brought to appear before him. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. They brought a lot of accusations, but they had no proof. Well, he answered for himself. Notice what Paul said, answering these false accusations. Neither against the law of the Jews... In other words, even their laws, he made it very plain, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. He made it very plain that, no, he had not taught what was rumored that we read in Acts chapter 21, that he himself was actually zealous for God's law, and he adhered to it. He also made it plain that he had not taught anything that was contrary to the customs and actual observance of the temple and the temple practices. 
And he also made it very plain he had not in any manner been seditious, and he had done nothing that was against Caesar. And so all the accusations that were brought against him, it would appear, were in all of these three areas. But they were false. What's more important for the purpose of this message is that Paul said, no, I did not do those things. We then find in Acts chapter 26 that the Apostle Paul is brought before Agrippa. Now, Agrippa was an individual who had an interest in Jewish practices. And commentaries say that he had taken very special interest into their customs, and, and the Bible says the same. And Paul is knowledgeable of this. He mentions this in Acts 26 and verse 2. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused of the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. So now he's speaking before someone who is very knowledgeable of the teachings of the Jewish people. In verse 6 he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And please understand that because the Apostle Paul taught the decrees of the church from Acts 15, and he taught what God had revealed in Acts chapters 10 and 11, which the entire church accepted, and that is that God had given his Holy Spirit to someone who was not circumcised, and therefore... God's leadership correctly understood that it was not necessary for a Gentile to be circumcised to receive God's Spirit. He taught them that they did not. Now, with that, with the receiving of God's Spirit, was the conveyance of the promises that God has given. And so when he refers to, as he does before these kings, the hope of the promise or the hope that he stood stands for, which is that of the resurrection, it is a core issue. He's going back and addressing the very thing that, in a sense, is a core of their arguments. And so he says in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promises made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, Hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. And please remember their accusation, the rumor against him, was that he was teaching Jews that they need not be circumcised, that they need not follow the customs and be a part of the practices and worship God, which Paul himself had come up to Jerusalem to do, and that is to give alms at the temple of God. Now, when saying this, because his focus is on the promise, he said to King Agrippa, he says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Because he knew that King Agrippa was very knowledgeable of the customs and practices and in doing so had to be knowledgeable of God's word. He goes on to say what he did do in his ministry, and that's also very important. He goes back to the time when God intervened and called him, and he was struck down with blindness, and how it was revealed to him that it was Jesus who had intervened in his life, and that it was Jesus, the Christ, whom he was persecuting. And in verse 17, Paul recounting literally what was said to him. If you notice, it's in red letters. These are the words of Christ. He said, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified 
by faith in me. So Paul very clearly states here his message, what he did, and that he was following the instructions given to him. In verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. This is directly contrary to the very concept that the Apostle Paul taught grace without works. What Paul taught is what he said. He taught that they would do works or have fruits that were befitting or evidence of their repentance. Brethren, the evidence of repentance is turning to God. It's beginning to obey God. It's to keep his Sabbath. It's to keep his holy days. It's to observe the instruction that we see in all areas of life in the word of God. And that is exactly what Paul says he did. Now, what I'd like to do is to consider, brethren, when Paul says these things, and these are the things that he did, what was he in fact saying? Let's go back to Acts chapter 24, verse 14. It says, This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So I'd like to go back to this message and examine first what was written in the law of God regarding the Gentile and God's Sabbath day and his holy days. I have to believe personally that the Apostle Paul, who was very knowledgeable of God's word, that when he was struck down and he realized that God was going to use him and that he had a responsibility, that he was going to go to the Gentile people and preach and witness of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that he searched the scriptures and he examined them to understand what God had said in the Old Testament and his word regarding the Gentile. I think any and every faithful minister of God, when he has placed upon the responsibility to serving God's church, that he would go back and he would examine God's word as to what his duties are and how he should carry them out and what his spirit and attitude should be. And I have to believe when I read God's word and I see the zeal of the Apostle Paul and his dedication to God's word that he did that. And so with that thought, let's go back and see what would Paul have read what would have been his understanding based on the scripture when he said he believed all things which are written in the law? Now, to make that statement, he had to have known what was in there. You can't say you believe all of something if you've only read a part of it or if you only have knowledge of part of what it says. Now, he knew God's word. So let's start with the Sabbath. Does the Scripture say anything regarding the Sabbath and the stranger? Well, in Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the Sabbath commandment to the children of Israel, notice God's instruction. In Exodus chapter 20, we read verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the eternal your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, Then notice, nor your stranger who is within your gates. 
God made it very clear when he gave the commandment regarding the Sabbath to Israel that the stranger was to be a part of it. That the Gentiles who would travel with them would come out of the land of Egypt or later those who may have joined them, that they were also to keep God's Sabbath day. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 6. We read it again of the Sabbath day. But in this case, it's not the day, it's the seventh year. In other words, God has set in cycle in the land of Israel the understanding not only of the weekly cycle, but of a yearly cycle or a land Sabbath. Notice verse 3. It says, Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Vineyard. In verse 6, it says, And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you. Is God instruction, whether it had to do with the weekly Sabbath or, brethren, if it had to do with the annual Sabbath in terms of the Sabbath rest of the land, they were to be a part of it. Now, the original children, the children of Israel did not obey that covenant. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, we read God's commandment again restated. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 14. Notice again what God says. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So God included in his Sabbath commandment the servants. Some of them may well have been strangers or would come into the land of Israel, but he also very clearly included the stranger who simply resided within their gates may have been someone they had leased land to or had agreement with, and they were working for them. But see, God made it very plain that the stranger who was within Israel, he was to keep God's Sabbath day. And Paul knew that. When he said he believed everything that was in the law, he knew what it stated. Now, did God's statements regarding the holy days include the stranger? Well, the answer is yes, it did. Let's notice in the book of Exodus, and we'll start first with the days of unleavened bread. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 19. And I start here because it's a rather interesting statement because it's, it's a very strong statement that included all the people. It says, for seven days... Exodus chapter 12, verse 19. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You know, God was very strong. Whether the individual was a native or if, in fact, he still was a stranger. That he still, he resided in the land, but he resided there as a foreigner. That he was going to participate and in his property, his dwelling, and his conduct. That 
he would not eat leaven. If he did, the consequences were he was to be put out. Now, please note in relationship to this in Exodus chapter 12, that what if that stranger said, I want to be a part. I want to keep God's Passover. Well, we find there's very clear instruction. In verse 47 of Acts chapter 12, it says, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let them come near and keep it, and he shall be. Now, at what point does he become native of the land? It's because he is circumcised. We read previously in relationship to the days of unleavened bread, it speaks specifically whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. But when someone who is a stranger wishes to keep God's Passover, then we read in the same chapter, verse 48, it says, then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as native of the land. And so God was very clear in relationship to the Passover. It says, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So as we read this instruction, as we go on, the Bible very clearly makes a, de- a, a delineation between the individual who was a stranger who now had accepted a covenant relationship with God through circumcision and was now considered native of the land. There were also those who dwelt with them who were strangers who had not become native of the land. But notice what God says, verse 49. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So if a Gentile or a stranger was there, God wanted them treated with respect and treated, they all were under God's laws. If they wished to be a part of the Passover, which was a covenant relationship with God, then God said you need to be circumcised, not only you, but all the males of your home, of your household. Now, does the Bible say anything about other holy days and the stranger? Well, the answer is yes. In fact, you might just take a concordance and and look through the Scripture. You'll find more than I cover in my message. But I'd like to point out to you the, the reality is the Bible in the law expressly addresses the fact that the stranger was to keep both God's Sabbath and God's holy days. Regarding Pentecost, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, is speaking of observing God's holy days. And in verse 10, it says, Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God, with the tribute of the freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levi who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and be careful to observe these statutes. So God made it very plain. He did not only include their family, the Levi, he also very plainly included here the stranger. Now, he did so in part that they would help them or they would help support them in doing this. They were to keep God's holy days. We find then, verse 13, the same thing is stated regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you had gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. 
and you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. Make it, it's very, very plain. As God gave his Sabbath and he gave his holy days to the children of Israel, he not only told them that they needed to keep his Sabbath, to keep his holy days, he also made it plain that those who resided in their land also needed to do so. Now, they could not keep God's Passover or be a part of that unless they also accepted the covenant of circumcision. But I'd like to go through and explain how did, in the New Testament, the church of God come to understand circumcision? There certainly were physical promises that God gave to Abraham that regarded circumcision. But one of the most important promises that was given through Abraham was the promise of the seed. That is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ magnified the law. He made it honorable. He made it much more plain in terms of its intent and how it was to be kept from the heart. But see, the Bible also very plainly reveals in the Old Testament, which God's servants certainly had to recognize, that God had made very plain statements that Israel was to be circumcised of the heart. That it was not just in the letter of the law that God expected obedience, that he wanted them to turn to him from the heart. Notice here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. In verse 15, it says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all people as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See, the Bible clearly addressed something that had to do with circumcision, and that it was not only to be of the flesh, it was to be of the heart in a relationship with God. We find this also stated in the prophets, and that's in Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You know, based on God's word and what God had done with Cornelius and those who were part of his Household, perhaps also others who were with him as friends. How did God's church come to understand the lesson that was emphasized on that occasion? How did they come to understand circumcision? Well, Paul is very plain about this. It's in Romans chapter 2. He did not preach, and it's very clear. By his own testimony, he did not go and at any time preach that someone who was of Israel should not be circumcised. That was a covenant God had made with Abraham. That was a covenant that had many physical promises. And he was respectful of that. He was a part of that himself. But he also came to understand that God was not a respecter of persons. 
and that God was working through Israel to literally use them as an example nation. And he came to understand that the, the important circumcision that takes place in an individual's life, and this is a circumcision whether male or female, whether Jew or Greek, that any of us that come to God, brethren, this is a circumcision that has to take place in our life. It's expounded by Paul in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 25. It says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Does that mean physically something happened to the flesh of the male children of the descendants of Israel? No. But he's saying that covenant, that relationship, if you break God's law, you have become in God's sight uncircumcised. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Now, do you think the Apostle Paul taught this to the Gentiles? He's saying, you don't need to be circumcised. God's revealed that. But what he says, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? There's in God's sight, he is circumcised of the heart. That's extremely important for us to understand because this was a powerful lesson that was emphasized throughout the entire New Testament church of God. You know, when God did what he did in Acts chapter 10 through Peter and those who were with him, which they witnessed, it was God who did it. They accepted it. They understood these people need to be, these men need to be baptized And when they went in Acts chapter 11 before the leadership in Jerusalem, and they told them, this is what God did. There was no dispute in the church of God. They glorified God. They rejoiced at what God did. But you know, brethren, with that came a powerful emphasis of what does this mean? What is the lesson we should learn from this? What is God doing? Paul is expounding this, and it was a lesson that went through the church of God. And that is that we need to be circumcised of the heart. Verse 27, will not the physical uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? You know, what's really interesting is that it's very clear the Apostle Paul clearly taught the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised of the heart, and you need to keep God's laws. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, had God blessed the Jews? Absolutely. That's what he goes on to address. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit, what is the profit of circumcision? He answers that by saying, much in every way. It was a wonderful blessing. But he also redefines very plainly in the church of God and among the people of God. And brethren, for us today to understand the importance of circumcision of the heart, of turning your life into God's hands and being circumcised to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This was an emphasized to the New Testament church by what God had done. Now, when we read in Acts chapter 24, Paul said, which we've covered, and there's more than I've covered, 
what God said in his law. But Paul said he not only believed what was in the law, he said he believed what was in the prophets. Now, in the books of the prophets, are there statements that address God's Sabbath and the Gentile or stranger and God's holy days? In Isaiah chapter 56... Isaiah chapter 56, God addresses actually two different groups of people. The first is the eunuch. It is the reality of an individual who just physically will not have an an inheritance, that he would not have children to carry on the name of his family. Sometimes, in a sense of a eunuch, that was something by a physical situation. Sometimes it's the, the reality of life is the cards were dealt. There are men and women who simply are not able to have children. And so God addresses this. Notice here in Isaiah chapter 56, and I'd like to start in verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a covenant relationship with God. And it's something, brother, God says is a sign. And the reality is God is saying, you should grab hold on it. It's something that he's given to us. It's something we not only, in a sense, observe and keep, It's something we grab hold of. It's very special. It says, He who who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. He said, Don't say that. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree, that I have no future. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, notice it's plural, not just the weekly Sabbath, and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God makes a promise to them that if you choose me and you hold fast my covenant and you keep my Sabbaths, that you will have an eternal name, you will have an eternal place, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, they would receive the inheritance of salvation. They were not separated. Their future did not end. It would continue forever. Notice then verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to serve him. And so God speaks very plainly here of the foreigner or the stranger and to their children. That if they choose to serve God, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices would be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You know, Paul and and the New Testament church, they all became very aware of the statements in God's word where God encompasses all people. As we keep God's feast days, 
and we observe them. We look forward to that time when salvation is extended to all of mankind and later toward the end, at the end of the feast. As we keep the eighth day, that last great day, we understand that God's going to embrace all of mankind, those who've lived and died, and give them their first opportunity and opportunity for salvation. And that was a wonderful truth, and it is an incredible truth that the Bible reveals. Now, does the same, do the prophets also include God's holy days? Well, every year as we keep God's feast, one of the passages we read is very specific regarding the Gentiles and specifically the Egyptian who will keep God's feast of tabernacles. In Zechariah chapter 14, we read in verse 9 of this chapter that this is speaking of a time when Jesus Christ will be king over all of the earth. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Not going to be a lot of different or any, none whatsoever, various pagan or false gods. Going to be one God. And all of mankind is going to have that awareness. But we do read, as we read on to the same chapter, that there's going to be those who tend to resist this, at least initially. In verse 16 of Zechariah 14, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations who came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, is this just the Jew? Is that all that God includes? No. Notice specifically as we read on, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth did not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. Now, it very specifically speaks of Egypt, but it also includes any of the families, any nation. It says, verse 18, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. God's not going to allow that to pass. There's going to be immediate action. They shall receive the plague, excuse me, in verse 18, it says, And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall re- receive the plague. So we're really speaking now of a second year with which the Lord strikes the nations, plural, who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we don't read of a third or fourth or fifth year because what are they going to do? They're going to repent. They're going to turn to God, and they're going to keep the feast. And I hope we understand when we read this and we think about it to realize this is a a transitional period. This is a time of God bringing them to repentance because the time's going to come, and the third and fourth and fifth and the years that follow, brethren, when they're going to come up to keep the feast, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And how do we keep God's holy days? How do we keep the feast? Well, we come first to worship the king, to worship God. But, brethren, we also come and we rejoice in his truth. We rejoice even physically in his presence. It's a joyful time. And that's going to be true for the children of Egypt, for Assyria, for all the nations of mankind. Now, did Paul know this? When Paul said that he believed what was written in the prophets, brethren, was he aware of what God said? Did he think that somehow God had excluded the Gentiles from observing his Sabbath day? Or that he had somehow excluded perhaps some small group of people? 
Notice in Isaiah chapter 66. You can't get more specific than what is stated here. In Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 23, it speaks literally of what is to come. Verse 23, it says, It shall come to pass that from one noon moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh, all of mankind, without any exclusion, shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. You know, brother, when we read what Paul said, and he said that he believed everything, all that was written in the law and in the prophets, we have a powerful statement from the Apostle Paul believing those things that he taught the Gentiles, the strangers, they needed to keep God's laws. There's no question whatsoever when you back away and look at what Paul says in a testimony we have in the Scripture that comes from Paul himself. Now, another very straightforward proof is that Paul addresses one of the churches that he was responsible for in terms of raising them up in Christ and preaching to them and nurturing them. And that's the church in Thessalonica. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because the Apostle Paul speaks of, of his relationship with them, how he labored among them. And he said in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devotely and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he's very specific about his ministry, that as a minister he was wholehearted and he cared deeply for the brother and he wanted them in God's kingdom. Now he also expresses the joy that he personally felt as to how they received that truth. Notice verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now please understand, which word was he teaching them? What did he turn to? Well, he turned to the Old Testament. Now, his writings, as he wrote and he expounded God's word, quickly were recognized as inspired of God. But, brethren, when he says this, what he is teaching and what he is referring to is the word of God of the Old Testament. And he says, as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators. Notice who they imitated. It's absolutely contrary to this concept that the Apostle Paul, though he was a Jew and he practiced Jewish custom, because that's the explanation, that he taught the Gentiles a different message. Because if he had done so, he certainly would not at this time have encouraged them to imitate a Jewish church. But he did, and he praises them for it. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Do you remember what we read in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul went up to Jerusalem? The report that he received from the leadership in the church, 
that there were myriads of Jews who came into the truth. And what were they? All zealots for God's laws. You know, here the church in Thessalonica, they looked to that zeal. They looked at what they practiced and what they did. And they became imitators. So it became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. The Paul very, very clearly understood that God was reaching out to all of mankind, that the circumcision that God wanted was of the heart. And he knew that when God had done what he did, what he revealed to the church, that the seed, that promise that was given through Abraham, that promise of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, that through him, that God had extended the promises to all of mankind. And so Paul was the one who said in Galatians chapter 3, in Galatians 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. And please understand, we in fact, there are male and female. And we indeed are of different races. There's black and white and other races, and some of us have backgrounds. We don't know exactly what we are, but it's irrelevant before God in terms of our eternal life and the promises given to us. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. So Paul and the New Testament church understood what God had done. They understood that God did not require circumcision. But brethren, God did require that we keep his commandments. God did require that we keep his laws. And he very plainly gave instruction in the law and in the prophets regarding the keeping of the Sabbath by the stranger, he very plainly tells us that all flesh will worship him on his Sabbath day. He makes it very clear that all of the nations of mankind will come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. When we know that and we read what Paul says of himself, brethren, we see a bigger picture. You know, a lot of people, in a sense, they want to twist his words, but they do so by going to something that is small, not the trunk of the tree. They go to Colossians, and they take something, Paul says, and they twist it. They go to Romans chapter 14, and they twist his words, which are not about a keeping of the Sabbath or keeping God's holy days. They're about fasting and when you should fast or being a vegetarian. They twist those words. They go to the book of Galatians and they twist what the Apostle Paul said in relationship to the covenant and to the rituals. And I think it's important for us to understand that the laws that require a sacrifice, they've not been done away with. You might say, whoa. (laughs) No, let me explain. See, all of us need a sacrifice. And the law that required a sacrifice, those laws, brethren, look to Jesus Christ. And please understand that. Please understand in Galatians that we're looking to Christ. He is our sacrifice. You know, the Apostle Paul had to explain that to the Hebrew people. Is that you're not forgiven through the blood of bulls and goats. You're forgiven through Christ. Now, that blood, the shed blood of a lamb, the shed blood of the offering that was brought to God for sin, that blood pictured the shed blood of our Lord and Savior. And so the law, in a sense, is even strengthened when we understand because we need Christ's sacrifice. We need his forgiveness and the forgiveness that is extended to us through his death and his suffering. And so when we back away and we look at the big picture, 
And we move away from the trees and we see the forest and we see the ministry of Paul and what he says of himself. Brethren, we have powerful evidence in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul taught the stranger. He taught those that God had brought into his church from the Gentile community to keep God's Sabbath, to keep God's holy days, to keep clean and unclean. He taught all of them to observe God's laws. Paul himself joined the church and those whom God called in Judea. And he was zealous for God's law. 